From tornadoes to hurricanes, blizzards, and everything in between, you're listening to the Stormfront Freaks Podcast, Episode 1, for May 19th, 2016. We're glad you've tuned in. The Stormfront Freaks are meteorologist and storm chaser Quincy Vagel, former television meteorologist Mark Massaro, storm chaser and photographer Paxton Biggs, collegiate senior in atmospheric science Brady Harris, and I'm your announcer and Skywarn Network radio operator Mark Johnson. Today, the Freaks welcome guest Edward Shaver, physicist, inventor, and chief technology officer for Entropy Technology Design Incorporated, makers of the Nimbus line of handheld lightning and severe weather detection and advanced warning devices. Now, here's the moderator of the Stormfront Freaks podcast, amateur storm spotter, Phil Johnson. Well, welcome. Uh, Welcome to episode one. I'll tell you what, guys, seems like we've been uh, planning this thing for ages, uh, but thank God the, the day's here. We're actually getting episode uh, one under our belts, and, and we're happy to bring this to you guys. Um, b- before we get into, uh, we're looking forward to talking to our, our guest uh, tonight. But before we do that, I just I want to take a quick moment to introduce the, the Stormfront Freaks podcast, introduce you to our team. Our, our goal from, you know, from day one when we, when we designed the show was really to to provide a fun and, and entertaining show that that's going to really appeal to all weather fans, you know whether you're a professional Met, uh, whether you're an amateur hack like me, just you know the, the opportunity to discuss the views, uh, different weather views with a team of weather enthusiasts from all walks of the community, and we wanted to do this in a fun and entertaining way. Our, our hope is that you're you're going to enjoy listening, uh, if nothing else, because you're curious what the hell we're going to say next. Uh, but our goal is to also make sure that you're coming away with some value and, and looking at this thing from a standpoint of, I love weather. I love storms. Um, I just maybe don't know all the science to it, or I'm not out there chasing every day because I live in Portland, Oregon. Uh, so I live vicariously through other chasers or, you know, whatever it is, we, we want you to get a lot of good value out of it. And one of the ways we wanted to accomplish that was to bring you a weather podcast um, that was was going to not be focused on any one segment. OK, meaning we're not a weather. We're not a podcast of storm chasers. Uh, we're not a podcast of television meteorologists. Um, you're going to have, and I'll go through the list uh, that that was already uh, Mark already announced. Uh, we got Paxton Biggs. Uh, we call him Pax. What's up, Pax? Hey, how's it going? Yeah. So uh, Pax is a recent uh, University of Oklahoma grad, uh, but he's an amateur storm chaser, uh, also amateur photographer. Does some really good stuff, uh, but he's out there in Oklahoma. We've got uh, Brady Harris. Uh, Brady, what's up, man? Okay, I, I know you're there. I didn't hear you, but I know you're there. Um, he's, uh, he's a senior atmospheric science student at The Ohio State University, so he's currently a student. Uh, we got Mark Johnson. We call MJ. He's our co-producer uh, and announcer that you already heard. What's up, MJ? Here we go. There we go. All right, so now, now his background, he's actually uh, a county Skywarn radio coordinator and storm spotter up in Minnesota. Uh, then we got uh, Mark Massaro. We call Maz. Hey, hey. Uh, so <laughs> Maz is great. So we'll we'll poke a little fun at Maz. He's our elder statesman, uh, but he's got twenty years of history as a former uh, television meteorologist. 
Um, so Did you so, just call me old? I, no, I said elder statesman. Elder, I think that's fair. You bring Same the wisdom difference. to the group. Wisdom. <laughs> wisdom. <laughs> We're that's in what, trouble. That's what you bring. So, uh, so we got a different sector there, and then we got, uh, and then we got Quincy Vagel. We call him Q. Hey, what's up? And uh, so Q is a meteorologist as well. He's an avid storm chaser. He's got uh, some history on air um, in television and online. So the goal in bringing you kind of this eclectic group of of people from the weather community that are amateurs, professionals storm chasers, storm spotters, television meteorologists is is to also make sure that you the listener that odds are your view is also being represented uh somewhere in this group. Uh questions you would want to ask are probably going to be asked by someone in this group. And we might, you know, who knows what the heck's going to happen as we get going, but because it's such a, an eclectic group of guys, it's possible that it could get into fisticuffs if that's possible. Uh, over the internet, uh, it, it could do that. I don't know. We all love each other. We all, it's great, but who knows what's going to happen. And so we hope you enjoy it. We hope you have fun. Um, but that's the, that's the Stormfront Freaks podcast, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. So let's get into uh, the, the biggest thing we're looking forward to tonight is our guest uh, from Entropy Technology Design and the Nimbus 4 Severe Weather Detector. Uh, he's the Chief Technology Officer and actually uh, co-founder of of the technology is uh, Edward Shaver. Edward, welcome to the show. Thanks for Yay. having me, guys. <laughs> In fact, let me say I, I'm truly honored that I'm on the first podcast, and I, I will I will volunteer right now to be like on podcast number ten thousand as a look back. So when <laughs> we, you get we to will, like ten thousand, let me know. I, I want to meet. We'll love. We would love to have you at that point. Um, so do do me a favor, Edward, for really for me and for everybody else, just give us a little bit of your history and how, how you got into weather. A good question. And uh, it was quite accidental. Um, my background is physics. Uh, I went to Penn State University. Um, in my early career, I did work for DOE. Uh, I was interested in working on renewable energies. Uh, I did some work for on and uh, solar energy development. Uh, worked on the Barstow plant out in California. Um, had the interesting experience when Ronald Reagan was elected president. Um, he decided fossil fuels were great, and he zeroed out the budget for renewable energy development. And so I transferred my physics degree into uh, designing sonar systems that went on guided missile submarines. So I like to say I went from renewable energy to mass destruction in about two weeks, showing the flexibility of a physics degree. Nice. Um, and I was not involved in weather at all. Um, I got pulled into it quite by accident. There was an, an article in the Washington Post in 1989, uh, and it talked about a little boy that was struck and killed by lightning standing at second base on a little league field. And the gist of the story was, this was a tragedy act of God. If you're gonna play baseball in the summertime, these things happen. And as a physicist, it occurred to me that was a bad answer. You know, the right answer was there was some way that there was a warning device or technology on that field. So the little boy wasn't standing there when he could be struck. And that just got me into looking at, at what was available and there wasn't anything. In, in 1989 and 1990, basically, unless you were going to drag a portable weather station out there, you were just going to wait for the sound of thunder and hope. Um, and it got me thinking about what could be done. 
and I did some conceptual design work and decided that something could actually be built that could be portable and affordable and used by a little league coach. And that led to the design and development of the SkyScan product, which was introduced in 1995. Um, it was really the first practical self-contained portable storm detector and that it actually worked. Um, it was designed really for the youth sports and those kinds of applications. Um, it only had a 40 mile detection range. It actually was only good for about 20 miles, but it was reliable enough to, to serve that purpose. Um, it was my introduction into how fast technology can be made obsolete by the failure of the company running it. Um, by the time the first shipments of Skyscan arrived from China, the Skyscan marketing company had already gone out of business. Um, and so the manufacturer of the product was taken over by the Chinese and it's still made today. You can buy it on the internet, um, which just shows really how, how good a basic design it was for the time. Um, but it got me into weather. I, I had not really thought about it until then. And once I got into it from that experience and started having um, interactions with people that were using the technology, um, but most interestingly, I really got fascinated by thunderstorms. Um, I became a de facto storm chaser because the things I needed to know to design the SkyScan product weren't in textbooks, um, quite literally. So I, I realized very quickly that what you could get from the library didn't help you if you wanted to build a device that actually would help people. And so I went out and started to teach myself what was actually going on. And that got me into this. Uh, I've been fascinated by it since then. I've been fascinated by, um, you know, the huge disconnect between people's perceptions of things like storms and what Mother Nature is actually doing. Um, so it's been a very interesting journey connecting the physics to, to what's really going on to what the average person perceives is going on. And it got me very interested in actually producing technology that could make a difference, that it actually go out in the world and do things like, you know, keeping kids safe on, on Little League fields. Um, interestingly, as I got deeper into the design, um, the, and you get past that kind of an obvious need, protecting kids on a Little League field is nice, but I realized that there were really huge needs in, in all parts of our society, in schools and in industry, um, that, that really demanded a kind of, of practicality that simply hadn't been done, hadn't been executed. And it hadn't been executed because Mother Nature was, was very subtle as she usually is. And it, it, it took a long time to figure out what she was doing and to take that in, information and knowledge and begin to roll it back into products. Um, taking all the things that I'd learned with the SkyScan and have, having gotten fascinated with understanding thunderstorms and being able to, to make them understandable to people, uh, that led me into the design of the Thunderbolt product. Um, the Thunderbolt was introduced in 2003. Um, it's probably still the primary handheld storm detection product used around the world because it's the best thing out there. It works. Um, the thing that Thunderbolt did that the SkyScan didn't is that it actually was able to accumulate a small stream of data about a storm and build a model. And instead of, instead of just giving you a light stack that goes off when something happens, it accumulates data, tells you there's, there's a storm out there, plots its relative motion to you, and takes that kind of information and turns it into an ETA, 
it turns it into time warning for people. Because one of the things that I learned in talking to people that were trying to use storm detection technology, distance didn't really do anything for them. They needed to know how much time they had at a particular spot until that spot was at risk. And so that led me into not only taking the physics of thunderstorms and trying to understand them and make my craft of, of detecting them better, but also providing that interface with people that made that information usable in real time. Ultimately, the name of the game that got me involved is making a difference. Data is data, that's nice, but saving lives, letting people make decisions that make a difference is really what it's all about from my standpoint. Sure, sure. Um, the Nimbus technology really is my third generation design. It's, it's taking the, the 25 years of knowledge that I've accumulated um, and understanding that you really needed a much better mousetrap to, to catch Mother Nature in doing what she was doing. Because I wanted to go beyond just little bits of data coming in and little bits of data going out into a, a really sophisticated device that was seeing things that no one had really seen and tabulated before. Looking at data streams that are constantly coming out of storms, but that nobody's capturing. They're, they're simply not being looked at by any of the, of the existing weather technology sources that we use today. Sure. And I think really that's what Nimbus is going to do. It's, it's capturing and being able to access in real time um, a lot of data that simply isn't there in any source that, that you guys are used to looking at. And I believe it's also the way that we're finally going to be able to get a, a handle on doing things like anticipating detecting tornadoes. It, 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 the Nimbus is designed to look at, at what's going on in, in a thunderstorm and capture that complexity. And in real time, because it's got enough computing power and data collection power behind it, and I think it's going to let us take a really big step forward in, in being able to provide warning about serious things that happen very quickly right now. It happened really too quickly for the existing system to react and pass warning downstream. So is the tornado cre creating, you know, if I'm your student and I'm a freshman and I'm sitting in your class, your physics class right now, um, a lot of the stuff is going to be shooting over my head. What I want to know is is how what what's the tornado creating then that's telling the device it's near or or the the situation or the possibility right. for a tornado. What, what the Nimbus is able to do because of all that data it's getting, it's looking at all those magnetic fields that are constantly fluctuating inside that thunderstorm. A thunderstorm is a, is an enormous heat engine, right? It's it's a heat engine five miles high. And the convection in that heat engine is creating the charge separation that ultimately comes out as lightning. Before it comes out as lightning, however, it, it's producing a lot of other constant magnetic field fluctuation in that storm. The lightning is like the big spark. What I learned 25 years ago and, and that was poorly documented or not documented in the textbooks is that constant magnetic field interplay that goes on in the storm can tell you a great deal about what's going on in that storm if you learn to listen to it. A tornado is a very violent distortion that happens at the very bottom of that thunderstorm. It's an anomaly that occurs in the bottom 2,000 feet of this thing that's, that's 40 or 50,000 feet high. 
So imagine it this way. You have this, this giant engine that is a very complex magnetic field. It changes as, as current changes, convection changes. As that thunderstorm is getting ready to give birth to a tornado, it changes its fundamental magnetic field signature. And many of those changes are very fast transients. They happen in a very small area. And, and the fact that a tornado is such a confined event is why it gets lost in, in our national weather system. We're not designed to look for something that small that happens that fast, that changes that quickly. In order to see that, in order to see the signature of that kind of an effect, you've got to be capturing very localized magnetic field changes and be able to tie them to a very small part of that thunderstorm. That's the technology that we're creating. And if you can do that, I believe not only can I see the tornado as it forms, because it's a very violent change in that, that, that very localized signature of the storm, but I believe as we have, have time to look at the data the Nimbus is going to be collecting, and this is where guys like you in the storm chasing world is an important part of what I want to accomplish, because what I need is data collected from 100 places at once, and let's go back and look at the signatures. The Nimbus is literally creating data fields that no one has looked at before. I think we're going to find some really, really interesting things going on in there that help us to begin to anticipate when something like a thunderstorm is beginning to fundamentally change its nature and, and put down a tornado. Well, uh, let, let me get the other team involved with some questions, too. Yeah, yeah I, I, had a couple, yeah. I had a couple of quick questions here, if I can go ahead. Um, so speaking of, we mentioned that the device is able to detect that a tornado might be forming or that there could be a tornado. How is it differentiating between tornado and squall line? Because I noticed that there's a couple of different warnings it can give. So what, what kind of data are you ingesting or how does it know that there's a difference between, let's say, a squall line and a, like a supercell tornado? Um, size of the event. In other words, the Nimbus, um, when we when we started out with the design specification for the product, I wanted to go out to 300 miles because you needed to see big snapshots to be able to capture things like squall lines and see them physically different in the landscape. Um, we did much better than I thought. The Nimbus actually currently field tests out to 660 miles um, for the handheld unit. Um, the larger units that we intend to offer to the storm chasers, the mobile-based version, can probably go out a little farther than that. But the answer is that we can see a big area, we know where something is, and we can define the size of that magnetic field effect against that reality. So the Nimbus knows what it's looking for, and it knows what something, how big something should be in terms of it, if its actual scale in the landscape. Very interesting. In other words... Yeah. So in other words, obviously, tornadoes most are, are most likely to happen in, in violent squall line situations. So you need a technology that can map that whole giant event that's going on, but also have enough data available to it that it can focus its attention on the parts of that that are changing quickly and potentially most violently. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, that kind of leads into my next question that I was going to have is you have a squall line, sometimes you have these QLCS kind of brief spin up tornadoes and but you kind of answered it, it's able to kind of zero in maybe and look at the large scale and say squall line, but then if it's able to get enough data, I guess it would be able to pinpoint maybe the QLC, QLCS tornado within that line, it sounds like? Correct. 
um, the, one of the things that we had to put in to do that, not only do I need to see um, how far away something is, every previous technology simply was a distance meter. Um, every single data point that the Nimbus receives also attaches the polarity of the signal to it. So I have bearing on every data point coming in. So as the Nimbus is collecting the data, it's able to assign not only distances, but locations to it. So even in a very confusing situation, like a squall line rolling over you, it can still hunt out the very specific areas where it's seeing the violent weather occurring based on, on the magnetic field changes. So my question is, um, how is this any different, no offense, how is this any different from the National Weather Service warnings that get sent out when they look at velocity data on radar and they pinpoint where a tornado is occurring? Well, because the velocity data on radar is simply looking at at velocity vectors in the water vapor and the clouds, right? It's not looking at magnetic fields. Very often these things overlap, very often they don't. Um, one of the interesting things that I learned in watching storms these last 25 years is that Mother Nature doesn't always make those two events coincide so they're easy to see. In fact, very often they don't um, because water vapor and the magnetic fields, especially in a large complicated system, aren't, don't often coincide with that level of precision. So again, that's why the watches are given over large areas and the National Weather Service has to rely on you guys to actually go see something. That's the problem. That's the real inherent problem in the system that I've, I've been watching for the last 20 years. And I, I think the Nimbus may be one, one solution to that, at least a practical one, not perfect. There is no perfect solution because mother nature is really complex, but I think the Nimbus has the ability to, to give us much better data in a much larger percentage of those incidents than having to rely on water vapor velocity vectors. So can, can this device actually tell if a tornado is actually on the ground, like a confirmed tornado? Can it do that? Is that what you're saying? I think we can. The current product can't. I believe that the data is in there to let us do that because the magnetic fields of the storms are going to change. Um, it's probably going to take us a little while to sift through the data and, and be able to be precise about that. What the Nimbus 4 handheld, this guy that, that's being released now, um, is able to look at the pre-tornado conditions. It's able to isolate the really violent parts of the storm, both in terms of lightning frequency. Um, it can watch for the polarity shift in the lightning from positive to negative, look at the shift in, in, the, um, in the ratio. And that ratio shift occurs because it's being driven by the change in the overall magnetic field structure of the storm. That's why that's happening. It's not an accident. It's tied to that. Um, what the Nimbus 4 can do is, is isolate, that, isolate that occurrence to a very small space. So if we know the, the half square mile where that's happening, not just that it is happening, but it's happening in that half square mile over there, that's a really dangerous place to be. So Edward, real quick, uh, Brady here. So um, what if, I know like often you can have uh, situations where you have a supercell, um, where you can also have a squall line in, you know, 
a 300 mile radius. What happens if both of those are present? Um, does it um, pick and choose one to put um, to label, you know, say if there's a supercell, there's a tornado near or a squall line, or, you know, how does it differentiate between the two? Well, remember, a, a squall line and a supercell are huge events compared to a tornado. A tornado is a small, it, literally, it's going to be a small pin that you stick in that landscape. So what the Nimbus is going to tell you is I'm seeing squall lines. I'm seeing this part of the squall line might be a supercell. Um, it's still always going to be looking at that one small area where the data says right here it's very violent. So it's not like it. The squall line is just a really big adjective that describes a really big data field that's going on. The Nimbus doesn't care. That's really the strength of it. And that's what that's why the, we haven't seen a product that's able to do this. You know, one of the things you need to do is you have to have access to all that data in real time and immediately be able to sift through to the part that's most interesting and, and most important. Okay. So if you are, if you're doing storm chasing and you're in a suburb of Oklahoma, okay, there's a squall line out there. You really don't care what's happening 250 miles away on the squall line, right? Yeah, exactly. What you, what you care about is the data that applies to the two square miles around you. Okay. And, and I think that's that so, this platform has the ability to do that. So Edward, uh, Maz here. <clears throat> First of all, I'm going to pull on 20 years of all my physics and try and use the term that best describes this. Uh, it's cool. It's very absolutely. So I just want to say, I I want to say, I can. First of all, there's two questions. One is, so what's the cost? And and the reason I say that is is. I can, I mean, after having been on the air for 20 years, every TV station's looking for a competitive edge. Here's a potential, another tool. See, you know, them developing a tech team inside there or some of their reporters where literally you can get a lot of people out in the field with these devices and really narrow things down and help the meteorologist as well as, as the weather service. And then my second question is, uh, what's your stock symbol? <laughs> We're a privately held company, but I'm sure my my CEO can can get back to you with some kind of a of an investment option. Um, that's not my department. I just make the stuff, and 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 other smarter people decide what to charge for it. Although I I will say this: this guy right here, um, the basic handheld um, in non directional form, I think is going to have a MSRP of around eight hundred. And if you talk to, um, we have some really good deals we put in place. To try to get this technology in mass in the hands of storm chaser groups as quickly as we can. Um, so pass the word. Andy Trosper has a whole lot of special packages we're working on because, you know, I want the stuff out there because I want the data back. Um, one of the really clever things we did, I don't know if you can see well enough, on the on the back of, of our guy here, there are two USB ports. Two. Um, the idea is very quickly that all these things are linkable in real time via the internet. So the data field we're creating is incredibly rich at any location. And I think very quickly, we're gonna have the ability to mesh all that data and we're gonna see a whole other level of, of understanding come out of it. I mean, the real problem, and you guys know this, I think better than anything, the thing that I, I was amazed at beginning back in the early 90s when I was, I was trying to sift through the data to build 
something like a SkyScan, which, you know, today really is a high school project toy. There just wasn't any data there. All the data is disjointed. And, and somebody has data about a, a storm they watched in Florida, you know, 30 years ago. What, what, what I was amazed at was there'd be these little data pools that somebody went out and, and cataloged one event. And then because they were accessible for eight years afterward, that little event was the basis of all the work that was done. And, and it made it a very limited, narrow, myopic view of what was going on. And so I, I think we are, I think the Nimbus can help there be a real change in that landscape. You know, we, we're about to have a flood of data that no one's looked at before. And I'm sure there's stuff in there that I haven't thought about. I'm really hoping there is, that there's real potential here for us to learn a lot just because we're seeing these thunderstorms in a way that they haven't been seen before. We're seeing them through a different filter. All right, so we're going to jump into our lightning round. Uh, so, so part of you know we want to have fun doing this. So we just got we just got done talking a bunch of science and physics and uh, all kinds of good stuff. Edward, you did a great job of dumbing it down for people like me, so I appreciate it. Uh, but we're going to have some fun now. We're going to do what we call the lightning round. This is going to be a two two minute speed round of of questions for our guests. And what we're going to focus on uh, today is we're actually going to honor the movie Twister. Uh, a lot of people know we just celebrated its 20th anniversary uh, just a couple weeks ago. So I've, I'm going to just rattle off in the next two minutes uh, some Twister questions. Uh, Edward, give me an answer. If you don't know, just say, I don't know. And I'm sure uh, the team, you guys can chime in with the answer. Sound good? Sounds All right, good. here is we there, go. Is there a prize here, Phil? What's the prize on the? You didn't say the prize. It's, it's called Pride. Pride, okay. That's the prize. <laughs> okay. All right. So, question one. Ready, go. Uh, what actress played the role of Joe? Helen Hunt. What food in Aunt Meg's breakfast was described as practically its own food group? Ooh, I got to pass on that one. Gravy. Yes. Number three. What was the real reason Bill went to see Joe at the beginning of the movie? I don't think she was pregnant, was she? No. <laughs> not, not, that, not that any of us moviegoers were aware of, no. Signed divorce papers. Good. What animal was seen flying in the water spout? A cow. What movie is playing at the drive-in theater when the tornado hits? Here's Johnny. The Shining. What is the name of Bill and Joe's tornado recording contraption? Anybody? Oh. Dorothy. Dorothy. Dorothy, yes. What, what is the name of Jonas's tornado recording contraption? Anybody? <laughs> no dot, idea. Dot three. What was Bill's nickname oh. by the team as told in the story around Meg's table? The extreme. The extreme. In an oh, this is a good one. In an era of the film crew, even though the movie is set in Oklahoma packs, what is the sign on the road signs? Anybody? Texas. True or false? Last question. <laughs> Twister was the first movie ever released on DVD. True or false? False. What's your guess, Edward? False. I'm gonna guess. I'm gonna guess true. 
You are correct. Whoa. That, is, uh, that little, yeah, horrible. I had to look this up. I wouldn't have known that either. But it was actually uh, the first movie out on DVD. And lo and behold, it was the last movie out on high-definition DVD before Blu-ray took over. Uh, it was the old VHS Betamax uh, competition. So I was keeping a score, I think, because of the cow answer. I win the car. You did You did good. You got pride. <laughs> you, you got pride. You spent what, all the money on the buzzer. Uh, but, Edward, hey, we appreciate you joining us. And, and My obviously pleasure. And a good sport and sharing. Um, and certainly you're welcome to – uh, to stick around as we get into some other discussions as well, but uh, definitely appreciate you having on board. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we've actually got answers to solving the storm chaser congestion uh, out in the Midwest. We got all the answers on how to fix that. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to introduce storm school with Brady Harris. Uh, each episode, what uh, Brady's going to pick an often confusing weather topic to teach on. Uh, and I know today he's in the kitchen as he's cooking up some storm ingredients. This is Storm School, where together we'll take an in-depth look into certain weather phenomenon, why they happen, where they happen, what causes them. Some topics we'll cover will things you might have never heard before or things you've heard a lot. Welcome to Storm School. Class is in session. Hey, what's up, guys? This is Storm School. I'm Brady, and today we're going to be covering what are some of the ingredients for a storm. Now, there are four ingredients, three of them um, you need for just regular plain old storms, and then the fourth is used or needed for a supercell thunderstorm, which is, you know, a storm that basically rotates. Um, so, the you know, the first three, the first one is instability, the second one is moisture, the third one is lift, and then number four need for supercells in any sort of rotating storms is wind shear. Um, so let's start with the first one, instability. Instability is defined as basically the tendency for air to rise on its own. So, you know, some of you may have heard the phrase warm air rises, cold air sinks. And that's partly true, but it's, it's more warmer air rises and colder air sinks. So all instability is is when the air at you know a certain level is warmer than the air around it which will actually cause that air to rise expand and then cool and if it's got you know our second criteria which is moisture if it's got that then that it'll form clouds it'll form storms depending on how strong the instability is um, so that's instability now number two is moisture and all moisture is is just water vapor in the air you want a lot of water vapor um, which will allow clouds to form. You know, if you don't have any water vapor in there, you're not going to get clouds. So that's a given. You know, you need a lot of moisture. The more, the merrier, usually. And then lift is number three. And now all lift is, so, you know, some of you may have heard of a cap. I'm sure most of you have heard of, you know, any storm chasers out there have heard of, you know, oh, we've got a strong cap today. Now, it's it's called a cap because it, it acts like almost like a lid on a jar. So you have air inside the lid below the cap that tries to rise and get out, you know, outside of the cap is pure instability. It's very unstable, but it can't because it can't rise above the cap. It can't get out of the cap. So what lift does is um, lift will lift um, that air that's at the surface outside of the jar, out of the cap, up into the air where it'll be warmer than that air, causing um, it to rise, um, basically, 
into huge, tall, towering thunderstorms. Um, and then, you know, severe weather will ensue. So certain mechanisms of lift, certain things that lift things past the cap, lift air past the cap, is any sort of front, a cold front, a dry line, a warm front, a stationary front, all of those things can lift air past a cap on, you know, a certain day, which will, you know, once air gets lifted past that cap, severe weather happens, storms happen, storms start to form, um, and sometimes uh, they're strong caps, sometimes they're weak. So that will, you know, lift will help it get past the cap. Now, our fourth uh, thing on the list is wind shear. And all, all wind shear is, it basically looks at whether wind changes in speed with height um, and also changes direction with height, or both in some cases. A lot of times wind will always, not always, but most of the time increase in speed with height. But where, you know, severe weather usually happens is when it changes direction, especially in the lower levels, with height pretty fast, um, which causes rotation. If you imagine a thunderstorm at the base, if you have winds, you know, coming out of the south and then, you know, at the middle part of the storm you have winds coming out of the west, that will cause the storm to actually rotate, which will cause severe weather. Um, so wind shear is very important for supercells. Any sort of rotation is usually caused by wind shear. Um, so that's the four criteria for storms. In a later episode, I'll get to some of the numbers in terms of what makes um, some of the numbers we're looking for for some of these criteria that make it, you know, a severe storm. But for now, those are the four ingredients for a storm. Thanks for joining me, guys. And now back to the podcast. Welcome back. Uh, our goal right now is to get into a topic that every year this this gets raised. Uh, but every year, I'll tell you what, it gets bigger and bigger. Um, and that's storm chaser congestion. Uh, it just seems every year more and more people are complaining about they're all over the place. And, um, you know, not too long ago, there was uh, an article that came out in the Times Record News uh, by Lynn Walker. And it was titled, Amateur Storm Chasers Cause Headaches for Emergency Spotters. And uh, it, it went on to talk a little bit about, and actually the first sentence said, the storm chasing frenzy is causing headaches for emergency personnel in severe weather situations. Uh, they had a guy who represented the uh, Aries uh, coordinator in Texas, the, the radio sc uh, spotters. He, he was quoted as saying uh, that the country is inundated with these people, quote unquote, these people. Uh, he said they will sometimes park in the middle of a road to watch and photograph an approaching storm. His group has been calling law enforcement to clear the way of, of congested roads. And actually just today uh, in the Washington Post, there's an article by Jason Same Now. Uh, and the title of the article was More Will Die, The Ethics of Up-Close Tornado Chasing. And, you know, we got a good group of guys on here. But I, I first want to, I'm going to turn it over to Q because, um, you know, he and Pax have, uh, have obviously been in that situation, in the plains especially. And um, I guess, Q, give us an idea what's going on. Yeah, I think just as an overview. You are breaking up a little bit there. Is that in theory? There you go. We got keep All going. Right, try this again. Give a... So the whole theory is that there's chaser convergence and dangerous activity with storm chasers just all everyone's going on a storm and then there's cars all over the place and there's all this stuff and i just want to put kind of out there up front i don't see this as a widespread problem on every storm in every city in fact 
probably nine out of 10 storm chasers, I don't, I don't even see any convergence really. Um, but I think the vast majority of storm chasers are spread out. And personally, I try to take some more of the side roads because if you go down a main, main highway, yeah, you're going to see a lot of storm chase vehicles, but there's definitely a lot less traffic on the Apparent in Oklahoma, Texas, a lot of chasers are there. That's where they're, that's where they're stationed out of. So you're going to have locally, you're going to have, there's a storm near Norman. Yeah, we're, you're breaking up a little bit. Q. You're going to have a um, Q, you're breaking up a little bit. Pax, can, can you jump in too and kind of tell us what you're seeing? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a problem on some days. Okay, when you get a big moderate risk throughout the plain states, there's, there's obviously going to be chaser convergence, a high risk, anything like that. But I feel like everyone has a right to the road. And how can you, how can you delineate between what is actually chaser convergence and what is just normal traffic? Like some of these roads, it's obvious. But sometimes when you get into these bigger cities, you can't really tell. And I don't know how you would moderate this situation. And I don't, I don't really think it should be moderated because it's, it's not like every single chaser out there doesn't serve a purpose because there's a lot of chasers. And I know a lot of chasers who report and I report and what we do is important. There are some bad apples and there are some bad, bad eggs who park in the middle of the road or leave their door open in the middle of traffic and they, they cause a hazard for some people. But for, for a lot of people in the storm chasing community, this is a very beneficial thing that we do to help people around. I'm not saying that I'm a lifesaver and everyone that storm chases is a lifesaver because we're not. I mean, that's a load of crap. But I think good does come out of it. There is some bad that comes out of it, but it's not all bad. And I don't know how you would moderate it. And I don't think you should. Is it getting worse? I mean, have you noticed, uh, like from last year, the year before last year? I mean, does it seem like it's picking up? Well, I've been chasing for three years, and year to year, I don't think I've noticed any difference. But it's also a very small scale. Um, someone who probably chased fifteen, twenty years ago could tell you that, yeah, now it's getting a lot worse. There's way more chasers out there, but I, I don't. I, I just. It's so hard for people to get too close in the first place. That's why you don't see a lot of people get close as it is. I, I just, I don't think it's the problem that large scale media outlets make it out to be because I feel like that, I feel like they're almost pandering to a certain popular part of the population who has no idea about storm chasing and they're just trying to get a good story out of it. That's, that's the way I see it. Well, let, let, let me ask you this, because you, you talked about, because I, I honestly, I think I've got the answer here, because I was thinking about this when this became an issue uh, a few weeks ago. And um, I, here, here's the answer to this, because I, I think there's a bunch of hooligans that are out there chasing storms that don't know what the heck they're doing, um, that probably don't deserve to be out on the road. Heck, some of them probably don't deserve to be out on the road, even when there's not a storm. Uh, but then you throw you throw that mix in and all this traffic in. So here's what I'm thinking, guys. Um, I'm thinking of of have a storm chaser license. So each state can have a storm chaser uh, license. You know, maybe throw in a safety class with it. You know, if 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 you a lot of times if you're gonna have a gun, you take a gun safety class uh, as well to learn how to be safe with it. But have some kind of safety chasing class. 
have high fees, meaning I got to pay a lot of money for this license and have even higher penalties. Because here's what will happen. If you put a license to it and you put fees on it, there's a bunch of hooligans that are going to be like, oh, crap, I don't want to pay hundreds of dollars. I just want a storm chase, right? And, and so what's going to happen is it's going to deter them. It's going to deter it's, or they're going to, they're going to deter them from getting a license and then they're going to go out on the roads. And if they get caught out on the roads, uh, they're going to have huge fines attached to being out on the roads chasing. So the question is, well, how do you determine if, if someone's chasing, right? So, so understand it's, it's like a, it's like a fishing license or a hunting license. Okay. I could choose to get a fishing license or not. Okay. And, and I could still, if I don't get a fishing license, I could still go fishing, but there's the chance that the DNR could show up and see me and ask for my license. And I, if I don't have it now, I'm paying a fee. I got to pay now what, whatever fee it is. Cause I didn't get my license. So that encourages me to get a license. So the state can track who's got it, who went through the safety class. Cause here's the other reason in Ohio. And I don't know how this is within every state, but in Ohio, when there's a, a when we've had a big snowstorm, they have snow emergencies where you cannot be out on the road. And if you're out on the road, if it's not for, you can get pulled over for just being on the road during a snow emergency in a county. And if they pull you over and, and you don't have a, a legitimate, I mean, there's a list of, of reasons and all that kind of stuff that, that you can but it's very small. And if you get pulled over, you could be fined for being out on the roads during a snow emergency. So why can't a state say, hey, if a county happens to be under a tornado warning during that time, we're issuing a, an emergency. Everybody's got to be off the road unless you are a licensed storm chaser. Uh, but law enforcement has every right to pull anybody over. But as long as you got your license, you're clear. And if you don't have your license, you're paying a big fine. And that's going to get all the people that are just doing it for the crap of it, get them off the roads. I think that's perfect. That's bombshell. Um, and I'm going to be running for governor this fall. <laughs> Lieutenant if governor. You're interested. I was just going to say, don't let, the po- don't let the politicians <laughs> hear that? about that. that. What do you think of so, that great stuff? Yeah, don't let the so politicians the hear about that. To, They'll be all over it. So the plan <laughs> is to basically lock down a county when there's a tornado warning. And only licensed storm chasers can be out. And if you're caught, you're one of the 187 storm chasers within that county and you get caught. Are, are we saying we're going to pull over all 187 storm chasers and give them no. all tickets? No, it's, it's no different than if I'm fishing and I'm fishing in this, you know, this, this set of big lakes. Um, the DNR can't check everybody, but they can check people and that's what they'll do. And so it's the threat of knowing that, hey, I could be one that gets checked or gets pulled over if I happen to be in the the county that's got the tornado warning and I'm out on the roads, I could get pulled over. That's up to law enforcement, whether or not they want to do that. But that threat is there. And it's great revenue source for the county. They got to love that. How about... How about a safety issue on this? Because now you have police officers in a county that's under a tornado warning pulling over people on the side of the road, and they may not have a very good understanding of what's going on with the storm. So they could potentially be putting people in harm's way. So they pull over a person and a tornado hits them. 
then what happens? Well, what are they doing Sitting. now? I mean, what what are they doing now when they're blocking traffic and they're you know they're they're sitting in the way now? I mean, what what's law enforcement doing at that point? I understand there's going to be you've got limited law enforcement. So I mean, and part of your law enforcement that's out there is probably also involved in doing a lot of storm spotting. Uh, it could be involved in that as well. But I, I'm just saying, you you put that threat out there that that could happen, and you're going to have people that jump ship. And I'm not going to get a license anyway. And oh, I didn't get caught this year. Well, you know, good for you. But we caught enough people that it puts that fear of God that you want to pay $400 for a license, or do you want to pay $1,500 for a fine? Great. We just lost our law enforcement sponsors too. Oh, darn, God darn it. Well, yeah, Phil, and you bring, bring up a, you, you bring up a great point. I think, I don't necessarily think it that that, that is feasible really um, in terms of um, trying to pull over every person. But I do think that there is a big problem about like amateur storm chasers being out and reporting these things about, you know, like a tornado or the location of a tornado or how big a tornado is. Um, that's false. And I think that problem can be potentially solved um, by, you know, trying to, because that's, you know, it's, it's very hard to limit the amount of people out on a certain roadway in a certain county. But I think that's also a problem as well. So I think that's, you know, it's, it's, we have to be able to talk about this because a lot of misinformation out there in terms of, um, you know, storms and things that, that actually do you know, could impact people. And, you know, if they say the tornado is here when it's really not, you know, that, that, that also, that information is also, you know, can be very destructive to people. Well, I think that's, a, it just brings up another issue to brief mention is I, you know, I was, I was always curious, why did the national weather service stop issuing spotter ID numbers that have been through the spotter trainer? Because you could always report, um, with your spotter ID, which would help the National Weather Service go, okay, is this a legitimate report or do we got to take this into advisement because we don't know? I mean, if because at least in our, um, uh, through our National Weather Service, they got rid of the ID numbers. Okay, did they? Yeah, they did. And, and hmm. so to me, that's confusing because now how do you trust who you're getting spotters from? But again, I just, I think that plan is going to get rid of the people that, shouldn't be out there you know because heck if if you're doing it for science anyways you'll get a grant to pay for that license right there's there's money all over the place there q you love that idea don't you oh yeah that's i think it's a well (laughs) i'll leave the sarcasm aside but I, i think going back to before just the the feasibility of being able to enforce that and putting law enforcement in the risk of danger just doesn't seem I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, they're they're already in the risk of danger, and and I just bring that up because if these if if the the you know the article is talking about these spotters that are calling law enforcement saying oh they're clogging up traffic get them out of there you know they're, they're doing it anyway so why not you know for the county make some money on it try and get people through some kind of safety training to get this license so you know that there's at least some training involved and you're you're trying to get rid of you know, Jim Bob that's taking his pickup truck to go look for a tornado. Well, if anything, I numbers, think numbers just going to clump Q and packs. That's all. That's all you need. No numbers, just first names. That's true. <laughs> 
But no, I think if there's one way that we could possibly maybe limit some of the issues here is um, a lot of chasers that when they're out, I mean, this doesn't happen a lot, but it happens enough where they're, they're passing people going like 90 on a, on a road where it's rain and wind. And I mean, I know it's hard to, to, for the, them to get pulled over at that point, but I think there needs to be maybe more enforcement with just reckless behavior, like people who put tripods on the side of a road or people who stop in the middle of a road to take pictures of a storm like that's that's not OK. And that again, that doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen enough where I've seen incidents and I've seen people drive off the road or I've had close calls where I almost hit somebody. So that's that's something that's maybe a little bit more feasible to attack is just that reckless behavior that is I means breaking the law, even though it's hard to enforce because it's maybe in the middle of nowhere in Weld County or, or something, but you know. But you still have law enforcement have to come and, and take care take care of them. So it's no different than if law enforcement's pulling somebody over that's out on the road that shouldn't be. Well, you know, hey, here, here, here's what you could do, right, is the people that are licensed, give them one of those big um, magnetic sky-worn uh, things to plop on the side of the car, right, to make it all official and make them feel good. I think I think one of the main issues here is that all of these these problems that are outlined. I read I read that article you gave us. I think the biggest problem is people are not obeying just basic traffic laws. I, I think none of these problems happen if people just learn how to drive and actually abide by the laws that are already in place. If you do that, I don't think you have as many problems as what people try to describe. So no, issue no, driver's I, licenses, is that what you're saying? Basically. <laughs> exactly. Pass the test and know how to drive. All right. Um, anybody else? Any, you got any feedback on that? Otherwise, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pick a running mate um, in a month here or so, and, and uh, I'm going for governor, <laughs> lieutenant governor, I guess, if that's what it should be. I'll be that's your VP. Okay. All right. So uh, on that note, what we'll do is we'll, we're going to take another quick break. Uh, when we come back, you're going to hear the team's recommendations for our weather fools. Uh, and you might ask, what, what the heck is weather fools? And I'll tell you, that's a good question. Uh, so stay tuned. You're listening to the Stormfront Freaks podcast. Welcome back. So, uh, so what is Weather Fools? Well, basically, what we're going to do is each show we're going to share a picture or a story of someone that that just wasn't being very weather smart. Uh, you might want to call them other things. Uh, we might too, but we're going to call them Weather Fools. Uh, and so, I'm going to I'm going to get it started. I, I want to bring up um, the the title of this was Insurance Rep Looting a Home She Inspected. So this was on, on NOLA.com uh, by Latisse Bacon Blood, uh, was the author of the article. But um, the article said an insurance representative hired to assess an itemized property damage from a recent tornado in Louisiana has been arrested and booked with looting the house she was sent to inventory. Uh, investigators say the woman told deputies she didn't think she was stealing since the property was going to be discarded. So the homeowner, <laughs> yeah, right? Right, just throwing nice. it away anyway. They're totaling the house; it's free. Um, so it went on to say the homeowner arrived and found the insurance rep and her husband removing multiple items, included things like dressers, bar stools, a television, 
a mattress. Who's stealing a mattress? That was interesting. Shower curtains, a sander, and vehicle buffer. Uh, the insurance rep told deputies she didn't think removing the items from the house was stealing, quote, since the items would be thrown away, unquote. Um, that's my weather, fool. Pax, what Obviously, do you got? Couldn't find, the, couldn't find the wall safe. My, yeah. uh, my weather, fool, I, I'm not sure if we're supposed to say names, so I'll, uh, I'll kind of code this up for you guys. This is uh, Bob Nye, the science guy or girl. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no one will know who you're talking about. Um, just based on this person's Twitter, um, this person likes to relate extreme weather events to climatological patterns. And I just, I, I can't stand that. Weather is not climate and climate is not weather. And this particular person has a relatively large microphone and speaks to what is probably a very trusting and maybe even gullible audience. And he influences people. And it's part of the reason that people don't believe in climate change or they think that the government is out to get us or something like that, because people like him or her like to masquerade as scientists when they clearly are not, and they don't really know too much about the topic. So that is my weather fool. So you're saying, yeah. You're, so you're saying it could be a female. So it could be Billy Nye, the, the science gal, right? Sure. Whatever, you, whatever right. you want to call him or her. All right. <laughs> Global cooling. <laughs> Brady, what do you Sorry, got? Climate change. Well, for my uh, weather fool this week, uh, it's on Los Angeles. Um, so it was a local newscast. Um, there was a, a female weather uh, meteorologist that was doing her normal forecast. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, an arm comes in from the right of the frame and is holding a gray jacket. And, it, and the guy says on the air, he's like, um, here, you should put this on. And she says, you want me to put this on? Why? Because it's cold. So here's this bozo handing her a jacket live on the air. And he's doing it, you know, for whatever reason, because, you know, apparently it wasn't appropriate. Her outfit, you know, I was looking at her outfit's plenty appropriate, but apparently they were getting emails and this guy just hands her this jacket live on the air. And it's just, it's, it's, it's very unprofessional. So it was, it was her doing her weather forecast and it wasn't much of a, you know, it was, it was just, it was not good for her. So do you think what, who, who was handing the sweater? Was it the, the anchor guy or was it someone else? I believe it was her co-host. Yeah. It was her co-anchor. Um, I think exactly. his name, yeah, his name wasn't. Not my my guess is, my guess is it, it probably wasn't him to dictate that. I mean, it could have been, but um, I, I don't know if he was the one reading the, the Twitters and emails flooding the station. Nah, he probably got it from a well, producer. Yeah, yeah, and I'm right. just shocked. Like their internet was that fast to get emails in while she was doing the show. Like I, I just yeah, I was just shocked they did it while she was doing the show. Let her get done with the, the you know the the um, uh, forecast. Get done with the forecast, and then yeah, you know, then do yeah. The video, it. the video is pretty funny. It's it's something that you got to watch because it's it's you know we'll post that. All for right, sure. they're dating. Yeah, Maz, go ahead. You're up. I was going to say they're dating now, those two. So anyway, um, so mine is not a new one. Mine's an old one, but this, just, this has to be said. I'm just saying, okay. 
it's the episode when and this isn't the star of this because I love Jim Cantore. He's awesome. It's the doofus who came running into the screen to say something or do something. And Cantore does this awesome roundhouse kick with a knee to the groin of this guy. And I'm just telling you, after 20 years of being on TV, God bless you, Jim Cantore, because I had ice cream dumped on my head once in Rhode Island at a live shot. I've had these drunk people. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm calm now. I'm, I'm better. But I just wanted to say that one should be played all the time. I think all meteorologists out in the field uh, should go through jujitsu and kung fu. Who knew I this would be a therapy a session for Maz? What's that? Who knew this would be a therapy session for Maz? Yeah, really. I'm better. I'm okay now. I'm brings back memories i'm good yeah i saw that just a couple nights ago they they aired that again on one of their shows and uh yeah it was you know and cantor is not a small guy um so that knee to the groin uh although he looked like the kid was drunk as all get go so he probably didn't feel it till the morning but He's like Rocky right. balboa <laughs> q what do you got all right for my weather fool on the tv meteorologist got caught live on air by surprise and i'll tell you where, what um, not exactly where, and I won't tell you his or her name, but according to this article, um, you will never know what, or let's see, you never know what you'll see on a live television broadcast. And this weather forecaster in a state somewhere in the U.S. got the scare of his or her life when the control room switched between videos on the screen and a live tower cam. And it turns out there was a large spider on the screen and the meteorologist let out a scream when he or she noticed the huge spider and just kind of like let loose and went nuts live <laughs> on air. And that video kind of went viral, but yeah, I'm not sure how I'd respond with a big spider, but I don't know that I'd scream like that on air. So that was, <laughs> that was my weather fool for the, the week. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which, which, you know, and I think I saw that too. And, and uh, which amazes me because, you know, they're standing in front of a green screen. That's, that's their real life. And for her to, to see that, um, you know, obviously on the side monitor and, and or have him. that reaction. That's uh, true. Sorry. We're, we're putting it online. So it does, I mean, so the people can see the video. It doesn't matter that much. Um, good. So, yeah, so we'll post all this stuff. We'll post all the links and stuff on stormfrontfreaks.com. Uh, so go there. And then we're going to jump into what, what we're calling media outbreaks, uh, which is really on the positive side of things. We, we want to recognize our media outbreaks. And these are people in the weather community, you know, that have taken some outstanding photos or, or some mind blowing video. Um, the one I'm going to bring up is, is Panola County, Texas Sheriff's office uh, on their Facebook page. They actually posted a picture, uh, a screenshot from an officer's body cam that captured. It was really a, a quite an amazing lightning strike while they were walking back to their vehicle uh, so it was really kind of interesting to see w- what the body cam can do. And I thought, you know, it's, it's not a bad idea. We should put body cams on chasers, uh, you know, to just kind of catch whatever that they maybe weren't pointed towards or looking at. Uh, but it was really a great shot. Um, Pax, what do you got? Uh, my honorary Stormfront freak or media freak, whatever it's called, um, is Brian Miner. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to him. He's a storm chaser and a photographer. You can look him up on Twitter at, at BDM photo. Pretty much every everything this guy posts is gold. It's it's awesome. He's a great photographer. If you want to see awesome storm chasing, just follow him on Twitter. Awesome. Brady. 
Well, mine is from uh, Portland, Maine, uh, where actually a police uh, officer cam or dash cam, not body cam, but a dash cam uh, captured this huge meteor going across the sky. Uh, it's like, you know, it's not like your average meteor shower. It was like, you know, big fireball illuminated the entire sky. So that was pretty cool to watch. And I can't even imagine if I would have seen it. I probably would have felt like Independence Day was happening or something. But it was it was awesome. That was great. All right, Maz. Mine is to uh, salute to all the Photoshoppers out there who've gotten so good, I can't tell what videos are real of weather or not anymore. And I've actually used one. I'm like, that is the coolest storm. It's not real, Mark. Serious? That's cool, though. Good. So shout out to Photoshoppers. I, I'm sure they'll appreciate <laughs> Got it. That. That's good. Uh, <laughs> Q. Well, mine goes back up to New England, kind of where I grew up. Not exactly in the exact spot that I grew up, but I'm out Washington. There was a, an observer that decided to go out and brave wind over 100 miles an hour, and they shot video of him kind of jumping out and just getting like literally like almost like flown across the observatory deck. So I got to give him props for going out there and get some cool video and being able to brave those conditions. Good. Cool. Well, we'll get, we'll get all those uploaded online. So uh, check out our website. Uh, we'll post those. I'll tell you what, that does it for episode one of Stormfront Freaks podcast. Uh, we thank you for listening. And we ask you, if you like the show, tell a friend, uh, give us a review. And if you didn't like it, uh, tell us. <laughs> give us a review anyway, right? Yeah. So um, we will, just so you know, we'll be answering listener questions or discussing your comments on future shows. So send us your thoughts. Uh, you can send those to questions at stormfrontfreaks.com or on Twitter at stormfrontfreak. Uh, special thanks goes to our guest from Entropy Technology Design. Thank you to Edward Shaver. And for MJQ, Pax, Brady, and Maz, Uh, I'm going to go ahead and signal the all clear. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Stormfront Freaks podcast. To subscribe and be notified when new episodes of our bi-weekly show are available, you can go to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio and search for Stormfront Freaks. For more information on the Nimbus Project and a link to their Indiegogo campaign, please visit stormfrontfreaks.com and go to our show page. If you would like to contact us with questions or make comments about the show, shoot us an email to questions at stormfrontfreaks.com or follow us on Twitter at stormfrontfreak. We'd love to hear from you. For show notes, additional information about this episode, as well as past and upcoming shows, videos, photos, and more, visit our website at stormfrontfreaks.com and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash stormfrontfreaks. Join us next time and tell a friend about the Stormfront Freaks podcast. Thanks for listening.